The opening of a new migrant shelter at the former St. John Villa Academy on Staten Island has been met with days-long protests as hundreds of borough residents continue to voice their fervent opposition to the use of the former school to help house the city's influx of migrants. We got people buying the American dream right next year. Scott and his family right here. They're going to have to potentially wake up to three, four, five hundred people hanging out on their sidewalk. There has been like days worth of protest outside the location. You know, some of them upwards of a thousand people. A lot of anger, massive protest, a lot of people, you know, expressing like some genuine concerns. I mean, Villa closed, like you said, in 2018, but Hill is literally across the street. There's a public school there um, down the road. There's a special needs school. There are people who are presenting con their concerns for their children. It's been quite a week. Welcome to the Staten Island Advances from the Scene, a podcast bringing you an inside look at the biggest stories on Staten Island with the reporters who cover them. I'm your host, Eric Bascom, and this week I'm joined by Staten Island Advanced City Hall reporter Paul Liotta to discuss New York City's ongoing migrant crisis and the outrage it has sparked here in the borough. Thanks for joining me today, Paul. This is the first time having you on the podcast since I joined you over on the public interest and advocacy team, yes. and it has been quite busy in that time, so it's been quite the introduction for me. Yes, I, uh, I certainly earned my paycheck last week, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you really did. And that's and that's exactly why I had you on. I was talking to some people about what we're going to do next on the podcast. And it was basically like, well, this is kind of the story right now. So it, it made the most sense. So I want to talk to you about the whole migrant situation before we get too into what's been going on here on Staten Island, which has just been absolute craziness for, for a couple of days now in terms of protests and outrage, so to speak. I want to talk just about kind of how we got here and what's been dubbed the migrant crisis going on here in New York right now. So can you kind of just give us an overview of how we got to where we are and, and what's going on throughout New York City? Mayor Adams' administration traces it to April of last year, so April 14th. 22, when they started noticing arrivals. This was around the same time that there was a spike in border crossings, uh, so a jump in border crossings. And, you know, the city was saying for the longest time that a lot of Republican governors, particularly from Texas, were busing people here. Sort of, they don't want to deal with the migrant crisis. That's a federal problem. So they're busing them to New York City. So long story short, border crossings have gone down, but New York City is still seeing a influx of migrants from out of state. The line from the Adams administration is that, you know, these are people coming from other parts of the country now, but still in the thousands per week. It's an ongoing crisis that has been uh, finally come home to Staten Island, I guess, in the past week and a half. Yeah, absolutely. And so can you talk a little bit about why New York City specifically is seeing this huge influx as opposed to other parts of the country or even other parts of the state? Because this has really been confined to, to my understanding, really to the city and not even the other parts of New York or, or a lot of other major cities. So why is that? So the busing uh, from the southern states was going to predominantly Democratic cities. There was the one prominent incident when uh, Governor Ronda said this, he might have flown people to Mother's Vineyard. And uh, that was, I guess, a year ago at this point. But uh, that was an incident. So I mean, these people are going to other places, but a lot of them are making their way like purposely to New York City because they understand that there are probably of anywhere in the country, there's the most access to services. The right to shelter comes into play. The Adams administration has a case going on right now. But while people will debate about it, the easiest way to understand it is that 
There was a court case in the late 70s, early 80s that decided that this group of men in the Bowery had a right to shelter. And that right to shelter has since been expanded uh, to women and children. And basically, the Adams administration has a case. They are challenging the right to shelter and trying to just get some sense of limitation to it. But as it stands right now, there is no limit. So, you know, in when you ask why people are coming here, it's because I think on some level they understand that they will have access at least to shelter as opposed to being out on the street. I mean, I was in L.A. and May and think out there it's much worse because it's really in your face and you're looking at people like sleeping on the side of a highway, sleeping on the street constantly. I mean, tent cities, that kind of thing. So while the right to shelter, you know, is subject to criticism, it I think is preferable to what I've seen other parts of the country. Yeah, absolutely. So can you tell us a little bit about where these migrants are coming from? Because I think especially historically, there's kind of been this idea, especially with the southern border, it's that people are coming over from Mexico and coming to the United States. And that's what people used to think of when they thought about illegal immigrants or, or southern border crossings. But that's not necessarily the case here, right? So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I was actually looking at the data from the uh, Department of Homeland Security, which handles border protections and they delineate where people are coming from i think it's south america uh, mexico and like other but basically has like increased to where it's the majority so i mean but the other is these people are literally coming from everywhere uh i think outside the roosevelt hotel is when a lot of people in the city kind of got their first exposure when there was essentially large number of people uh who was sleeping outside the roosevelt hotel in midtown manhattan and all of them were black people. Like, it's not the traditional sense of, you know, this is where people are coming from. And I think most Americans, like you said, have a sense of people coming from Mexico, they're coming from Central America. A lot of people are coming from West Africa, people coming from Ukraine, because that's obviously a war that's going on over there. The Adams administration has said there's people coming from China, from, you know, other parts of Asia. The new arrivals are from the international community more than anything. More just kind of on these migrants. And so uh, we've heard a lot of the elected officials, specifically the mayor and the governor, talking about them as asylum seekers and, and dubbing them as such. We here at the Advance have, have really been using migrant more. It's a bit more general. And the uh, asylum seeking process is very specific to people who have uh, you know specific circumstances in which they're trying to flee. Uh, they then need to apply through the federal government. There's a lot of different ways that they can do that. It's, it, it's rather complex. But so uh, can you just tell us a little bit about that and if the people who are here are actually all asylum seekers, as they are saying, or if these are really just people uh, trying to migrate to the U.S.? I think whether or not these people are literally asylum seekers is, you know, something that the courts will ultimately decide. But I mean, the city and the state, like you said, have identified literally all of them as asylum seekers. I mean, they continue to refer to it as the asylum seeker crisis mm -hmm. and their political opponents have challenged that repeatedly, but it hasn't just been the political opponents. Like there's one member of the media at City Hall who is constantly just trying to drive the point home that like, are these people actually, she's constantly trying to drive the point home that like, are these people actually asylum seekers? I know the city has put out sporadically some data on how many people have sought asylum, like are engaged in the process, I guess is the better way to understand it. And it's it's nowhere near 100%. I, it's, if it's 10%, I think that that is higher than it was in June. The city says around 100,000 people have arrived a little over. There's about 60,000 know, in the city's care. And of those 60,000, maybe 5%, 10% have applied for asylum. But like you said, it is a very complicated, like drawn out 
labor intensive process that would all these people, you know, qualify for asylum eventually, you know, if they laid out their case and said, this is why I left my country, maybe, but I mean, as of right now, a lot of them aren't even engaged in the process. So it's why I think we've kind of settled on the term migrant as opposed to asylum seeker. So can you tell us a little bit about what the city has done so far to address this issue in terms of setting up shelters, providing other services? The city has set up over 200 shelters around five boroughs. The overwhelming majority of these are emergency shelters that people might remember in like the early Blasio administration, Bloomberg administration, in hotels, in uh, schools, former schools, I should say. Although there were some in active schools in Brooklyn, but those were pretty quickly shut down when like the local communities there protested against them. But yeah, the city has set up majority emergency smaller shelters, but there are, I think now there's over a dozen. The city calls them Herks, but they're humanitarian emergency relief response centers, I believe, is the but these house upwards of it's over a thousand people, all of them, and gets up to two thousand people in the case with uh, the site at the Creed Moore in Queens and the Randalls Island site. But initially the city had set up a separate Randalls Island site and it quickly shut that down when it didn't get the use that they had expected it to get. But they've set up another site at Randall's Island. It's a very fluid situation. Like the city is never exactly precise about where the shelters are or how many there are or what their plans are going forward. It's just that like kind of like one of those like, you know, far the ball games right. sort of things. It's never been particularly precise. And even if you ask them like, hey, is this is location A a shelter? And this is true even with like the traditional homeless shelter system. They don't always confirm like which sites are being used. Yeah. And so I want to kind of use that as a springboard to get into the the housing of the migrants here on Staten Island, make this a little more local. You know, in some of our reporting, I I recently spoke to some representatives from City Hall and they had noted to us that less than 2% of the asylum seekers, as they put them, so migrants currently in city care are being housed on Staten Island. They didn't give me a specific number, but I did some rough calculations there. So that's a little over a thousand, maybe between a thousand and twelve hundred here on Staten Island. So can you tell us just a little bit about where those people are located currently and what the reaction has been from from some of the locals and from the uh, elected officials? I don't think this is a, a uniquely Staten Island thing, but in terms of reaction, wherever these sites have been set up, most have received pretty negative feedback from communities. On Staten Island, the first two were two hotels in Travis. So right off the West Shore Expressway, uh, Victory Boulevard, over there, they set up to, it got pretty negative feedback, not universally. I mean, there were, there's, you know, always people who were saying that, like, you know, these are people who need help and we have to support them. There was the incident with the man in the pizzeria who gave some people some mm-hmm. food and there was, he got some negative feedback, but also, you know, some support. I think the public advocate, Jamani Williams, came to, you know, give him a proclamation or something like that. So there were those two. Then there was another hotel in Rosebank. It's like on that, it's like right by the highway. So it's like in a weird like neighborhood border neighborhood kind of yeah. thing. There was one there. Then there was the Hungerford site. That's been up and running for, I'd say, the better part of a year now. That didn't really get much negative feedback. Assemblyman Sam Pirazzolo was like the first to sort of bring it to our attention. And he had said that the community was against it, but there hasn't been much activism against that site. And yeah, I mean, now, like you said, there's about 2% of the population, about 1,000 people being housed on Staten Island. But 
yeah, I mean, the sites on Staten Island have all gotten a decent amount of pushback, except for the Hungerford site and that other hotel. But I mean, I think what we're leading up to is, uh, you know, what's been going on for the past week in terms of people's reaction. We'll be right back. The Mayor of Maple Avenue is a powerful multi-part podcast about Sean Sinisey, a victim of former Penn State football coach Jerry Sandusky, who was arrested 10 years ago for numerous child sexual abuse charges. The podcast series is written and hosted by Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Sarah Gannam, who takes listeners into the world of addiction rehabilitation, where society can be quick to celebrate the consequences for abusers while not addressing the needs of their victims. Subscribe now to the Mayor of Maple Avenue wherever you get your podcasts. When it initially started about a year ago with the hotels, we did, we had some people out there protesting. We had some coverage of it, and then it kind of died down for a bit. We hadn't really seen a whole lot, and then as we got into that Midland Beach assisted living facility and Fort Wadsworth was floated as a as a potential site as well, that's when we really started to see people, you know, coming forward and and really speaking out against this. And so I, I do want to get to the villa site. As we mentioned kind of in the lead and earlier on here, they're now using the uh, former St. John Villa Academy, which closed, I don't know, five, six years ago at this 2018, point. 2017, 2018. Yeah, somewhere in, in that category. Um, so they're now using that site to house migrants, and it has just been absolute chaos, really. Uh, and you have been front and center uh, in a lot of it. And so can you tell us a little bit about what we've been seeing there on the ground? This was very much sort of a grassroots thing in that the community was first that brought us to it brought this to our attention. Villa had been on our radar as a possible site. I was of the opinion that it was not going to happen because of the conditions of the buildings there. And that is what we were hearing from local elected officials who were hearing that from the city. It, it was a site that was on the list. It was on this list of 3,000 locations, but it was very far down the list, primarily because of the condition. That changed on Monday, and uh, a petition had been circulating over the weekend, an online like change.org petition by a, a local resident. She had set up the petition, and I mean, it was it was getting some decent, like I think it's up to around 7,000 now, something like that. So it had been getting some traction and reached out to the local councilman there, David Carr, and had asked about it, and he said he was aware of the petition, but that, you know, what he had told me previously about the villa site, as far as he knew, remained true, but by the end of the day, the city was confirming that they were moving in. They were in the process of setting up the location to move in up to 300 single adults. In the coming days was what they used, but as we learned last week, it was, you know, by the end of the week, they were doing it. Since then, there has been, like you said, days worth of protest outside the location. Some of them upwards of a thousand people. A lot of anger, a lot of vitriol. Like you, like we said, it's been a lot of anger, massive protest, a lot of people, you know, expressing like some genuine concerns. Villa closed, like you said, in 2018, but Hill is literally across the street. There's a public school there down the road. There's a special needs school. There are people who are presenting can their concerns for their children. It's been quite a week. It certainly has. And like you said, there are certainly people there who have legitimate concerns in some ways. And then there are other people there who are hurling insults, telling people to go back to their own country, using profanity. We've had reports that some of the migrants who were moved into the site decided to leave because they didn't feel safe because of what was going on outside. We've had protesters breaching police barricades. We've had protesters arrested as a result of that. 
So there's definitely been both sides of it, and I want to kind of make that clear. And again, this is not opinion or anything. This is this is observation. This is uh, from from what we've seen and what we've reported. Let's move on a little bit to the lawsuit that has been filed. This has been, you know, something else that you've been following very closely here. So one of the neighbors of the St. John Villa site filed the lawsuit along with the Republican local elected officials trying to block the city from using the site to house migrants. We got people buying the American dream right next here. Scott and his family right here. They're going to have to potentially wake up to three, four, five hundred people hanging out on their sidewalk. was kind of a crazy back and forth last week that me and you were both kind of trying to figure out in, in real time with, you know, judges issue. You know what? Uh, I'm going to let you explain this part because you are you are really the expert here. Like I said, I'm still new to this beat. So I'm going to I'm going to defer to you on this one. Yeah. So the gentleman who lives, it's literally next door to Villa. He has raised concerns um, about, you know, because when they set up these facilities, they have to, like within the right to shelter, there's some stipulations for sites to meet if they're going to be considered, you know, in compliance with the right to shelter. And one of those is access to bathing facilities. So a lot of these places don't have bathing facilities. So what the city has to do is set up outdoor showers, which require, you know, generators and electricity, yada, yada, yada. So this gentleman's concern is that those showers are going to be literally next to his backyard. So he was part of the lawsuit. All the island's Republican elected officials signed on to the lawsuit. It was filed by Mark Fonte and Lou Gellarmino in Staten Island Supreme Court. What they were seeking initially, and this was with Judge uh, Wayne Ozzie, well, initially they were just seeking a temporary restraining order. So the elected officials had had a protest, uh, had a rally protest press conference earlier in the day on Friday, and uh, that was when they were sort of bashing, you know, NYPD's response to the area. If, if you're a member of a community, you should be able to, you know, come in and out of your community. Yeah, be able if, to leave if, your street. Yeah, I mean, if you get live, into your driveway. Yeah, I mean, even if there is protest going on, like you should be able to come yeah. and go as you please. Uh, so they held a press conference, and at that press conference, they had said the lost the court case would be taking place at 2.15 that day. So I thought I had some downtime. The press conference wrapped about 12. I'm like, all right, 2.15, that's when things will kick back off. So I went to my car. I went to write the press conference. The story was going to be sort of there. Criticisms of the NYPD response and, you know, the continued protests going on. As I'm sitting in my car on Fingerboard Road, I see two buses coming in, and I'm like, oh, it's time. Yep. So I got out. I got over to a place where the buses were going to be unloading. I was on Channel 7 in New York 1 and all the TV stations. Uh, my, my girlfriend's mother sent her a picture like, oh my God, Paul's on the news. <laughs> it's like, yes. But at any rate, so she, um, they unloaded the buses. It was about 50 people, 25 and 25 in each bus. The people got out, you know, went in. It was, like you said, a lot of vitriol, a lot of go back to your country, so from my understanding, when the attorneys got word that that was going on, they pushed to move up the court case. The court case got moved up to around one o'clock. In that court case, Judge Ozzie granted their temporary restraining order. He put a vacate order on. I would say about half the people left. There's a little discrepancy about why they left, but I'll get to that in a second. So we wrote that story, which I think we were both participating right. in that one. But by the time that story was done, let's say it was up at, they reached the court case at one, it's up at two. I would say by four, we got word that something else was going on and that 
the city had filed an appeal and that the judge in the appellate division had ruled against the Staten Islanders and essentially threw out the vacate and restraining order. That is where everything stands now. We have heard some varying numbers about how many people are in the shelter. Uh, the last official thing was 50 people arrived. There were 25 people who left. The city says they left because they were afraid of the uh, protesters mm -hmm. outside, understandable. Whether or not they were in the process of getting these people after the vacate order, I'm not entirely sure. So the last official number we've had is 25 from the city. We've heard lower numbers from people you know, who live nearby and from some of the elected officials. But the court case in question, as of right now, the shelter is set up. I just heard from an elected that they might have bust some people in last night, you know, around 1230. I have not confirmed that. But the court case, the next hearing is September 6th, where it'll be a more, it'll be a fuller hearing. Like it'll be like more of an official proceeding and not for something seeking like a temporary injunction. Right. I think after September 6th, we should have a better sense of whether or not this site will be allowed to proceed. And I mean, like we were talking about before the podcast, I think this is one the city feels it sort of needs to win. Even if they do lose the court case, they will continue to challenge it. Mm -hmm. And as it goes up the chain, I think it becomes more likely that the city will prevail. So it remains to be seen. But as of right now, the shelter is in place. There are far fewer than the 300 capacity that the city initially said. And we will know more on September 6th. Just as a disclaimer to our listeners out there, we are recording this on Tuesday, August 29th. You probably won't be hearing it before Friday, September 1st at the earliest, because I believe that will be when we are posting. So in that time, there may have been more migrants moved into the site. Again, as Paul said, we won't have another court hearing on the lawsuit by then. But just in terms of numbers and how many people are there, uh, this may not be exactly in line with, with the current status when the podcast posts on Friday. Before we go, and I mean, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but I wanted to talk a little bit about, because we've had so much of our coverage is around these people who are out here protesting the migrants and having them housed here on Staten Island. So even the elected officials overwhelmingly have kind of come out in opposition, from my understanding at least. But have there really, have there been any outspoken supporters or, or anyone who's really saying like, hey, you guys, we should be trying to help take care of these people in need? Like, I haven't really seen a whole lot of that. So is there anyone out there who's kind of beating that drum? I think those people, they have the backing of the city, the state, the federal government. So when you have that backing, you don't really need to protest. That's fair. You know what I mean? Like, why would you be making noise if you're already winning? But to your point, there have been a lot of people who have been interested in trying to help these individuals, trying to make it as as good a process as it can be. It's a thousand new people, many of whom who don't speak the language, many of whom are not familiar with like the culture in the States. I met with three guys from West Africa last week. And I mean, they have genuinely harrowing stories. One gentleman was telling me he's around my age. I think he said he was 34. He's been in refugee camps, has had refugee status since like 1989. So since he was a kid, like very small. There was another gentleman who said, uh, this is going to get far too into the geopolitics of West Africa. Long story short, the ruling group, uh, he was a farmer, he said, but the ruling group are traditionally herders and they brought their livestock just through his farm, destroyed everything, destroyed his entire livelihood. So he had to flee Mauritania. And I mean, a lot of these people do have similar stories, whether they're fleeing political violence in South America and Central America, whether they're fleeing more traditional violence. I mean, like I said earlier, there are people 
coming from Ukraine. These people all have very, very harrowing stories. And there have been a lot of people, particularly in our religious community, who have stepped up and are saying, oh, we need to help them. I mean, Mayor Adams' administration, one of his earlier initiatives was focused on uh, setting up shelters in houses of worship. Staten Island has traditionally had a similar program to that for the more traditional homeless shelter population, but this is going to be expanded to the migrants. My understanding is that that has not gotten up and running yet, and he announced it in, I would say, either late May or early June. But I mean, that is part of it, and a lot of the support that we've seen has been from the faith communities. And I know we published uh, an opinion piece that was a letter that our local faith leaders sent saying that these are our brothers and sisters, these are human beings, they deserve help. The idea that screaming and yelling is going to fix this problem is far-fetched at best, and we need to do what we can to support these people. I don't know if that message is going to resonate with everybody. I imagine it's not. But to your question, there have been people who have tried to put a more We've tried to take a more positive, personal approach to the situation than what we've seen over the past week in terms of people yelling terrible things. Right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Paul. You have done an incredible job covering this story, as you always do. I hope to have you back on maybe with a somewhat later topic, although there aren't really too many of those, which is what I'm learning is that there really isn't much light. But I I appreciate you coming on and all the work that you do for us. Appreciate it, Eric. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Staten Island Advances from the scene. If you like what you've heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit SILive.com for the latest on all these stories and more. Thank you for supporting local journalism.